Alrighty, uh, I've, we're gonna we're gonna do what we did a couple weeks ago, and we're gonna focus on the structure and the substance. So we're gonna spend maybe five ten minutes on structure, and uh, which for some of you is getting into the weeds, I know, uh, but it's it's I think it's important so that we understand the substance. So to the structure, to the structure. Um, we covered the declaration of the gospel. That was the first paragraph there, the distortion. That was the second paragraph, and now uh, Paul's delivery. And that's going to take us through the rest of, the, of chapter 1, uh, which is verses 11 through 24, which means we got to get our thinking caps on. We are going to do our best to move with haste. Um, th- this is uh, uh, Paul telling us where he gets the gospel from. Um, and so, well, he's just going to tell us the story. This is called a narration. You can see I've thrown my little outline up here for you. This is how I see it. And you say, don't care how you see it. I want to know how Paul says it, right? And I, I agree with you there. This is just how my brain works when I'm wrestling through it. Um, so uh, let's, uh, let's try to try to look at it here. Structurally, in verses 11 and 12, we see here a little transition uh, going on. If you remember last week, I brought up the word exordium. And basically, that was Paul just trying to get our attention. You remember the little phrase we said he was trying to throw? A couple of you mentioned it to me. That's why I'm bringing it up. He was trying to throw something in our face. That's right. He was trying to throw water in our face, trying to get our attention. And so he's done that, and now he's going to launch into his narration. In other words, he's got our attention. So the question is, do I have your attention? All right, good, good. A few of you have said yes. All right, I'm glad of that. And so now that he has our attention, he's going to give us this narration. He's going to tell us a story. And this narration goes all the way to chapter 2 to the very end of chapter 2. And so Paul is connecting his passion to his narrative explanation. He stirred up the audience. He's gotten their attention. And, now, and we are the audience now, right? And so now he launches into a personal accounting and again, continues all the way to chapter 2. So we need to understand that as we make the applications particularly to ourselves. So let's, let's try to understand Paul here. I think it's important to understand that he presents himself as a case study for the fact that the gospel is not of men. And this should not be new to us. Paul always throws himself in the middle of the story. Does he not? Can you think of examples of that? Always throwing himself in the middle of the story. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 3? You say you're of Christ, you say you're of Cephas, some of you say you're of Paul. Always puts himself in the middle of the story. He's not afraid to do that. Matter of fact, he is convinced that he is a player in the story. So as he does this, and, and, and let me see what I have here. His theology for him is not merely some theory 
but rather it implies a definite way of living for Christians. So if that's the fact, then his story is important. You see, in Paul's thought world, the imperative, that's the vital thing, grows out of the indicative. That means the stated fact. In other words, if Jesus is king, that means something, doesn't it? Right? I came up in easy believism. In other words, you could believe Jesus is king and go about and live like he's not king. Well, that's not the case for Paul. Remember, we've, we've looked at the first 10 verses, and he's laid out some of these facts. He's laid out these indicatives, if you will, and he's done that because if these things are true, if Christ has been resurrected from the dead, if he has been called to be an apostle, not of men, then these Judaizers, by that very fact, have to be wrong about what they are saying. If you Galatians have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are new creatures, then all of these things that they are saying, by, by very definition, cannot be true. The world is new. The world is different. The world cannot go on for you the way it has been going. As we move on to that, Paul's thought world is a narrative thought world full of stories about major figures. And these other figures also provide examples, either negative or positive, about how Christians should or should not behave. Are you familiar enough with Galatians to think about some of the other people he brings up? Who might they be? He brings up Peter. He said Barnabas too. In case he's wrong, you can say it was him. He brings these people up. Why? Because in Paul's thought world, people are examples. Are we examples? Boy, we are examples. And in Paul's thought world, people are examples either positive or negative for us. And then Paul assumes something. That is that his audience is and will be caught up in these stories. He brings somebody up in chapter 3 as a foundation for all of it. Anybody want to take a gander? Abraham. And he didn't bring him up. Abraham. Because he assumes if he brings up Abraham, your mind then will go back to Abraham. And you'll think, okay, Abraham. James does the same thing, doesn't he, in his letter. If he brings up Abraham, all of a sudden you'll get caught up in the story. Gerald, you know, we were talking a few weeks ago at a meeting and talking about how the power of stories, and the biblical writers are this way, the power of the story, and they bring them up positive, Alan, you were bringing up a sto of, of stories also. The power of the story. And Paul assumes you'll get involved in these stories, either in a positive way or a negative way. And Paul himself is not afraid or shy to put himself in the middle of the story. So let's kind of restate it. 
Paul presents his own life as a paradigm, that is a model or a pattern of his gospel of grace. Hence, he uses the term several times, his gospel, as a positive example for the Galatians to follow and then other people as negative examples. And we see it all the time in his letters, 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me. Me as I am of Christ. And I have others listed here, but we'll move on. So what is he trying to accomplish then with his narration? Well, we use this illustration early on. Paul has a theme. What is his theme for this letter? All right. Commit to whom? Christ. Not who? Not what? Not the Mosaic law, right? So with his narration, his narration is one of those support beams. So this is what his narration is. His narration is supporting... Who was talking to me earlier? Was it you, Jeff? That's his macro, yep. And that's a micro, all right? So... Let's jump in here if we might. In verses 11 and 12, if you would help me out, Master of Divinity, Steve, since I can't call you Parson Steve. Verses 11 and 12, please, sir. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, again, these are these transitive verses, these transition from that weird thing I talked about before, that word that nobody knows, but he's transitioning here. He says here in verse 11, For I would have you know brothers. So he's passionate but he still calls them brothers and treats them as such. Let's not miss that. With all his passion, zeal, and unwillingness to budge regarding any implication of the gospel message, he never gives up on the victims of false teachers. And I think that's an important point. Okay? Just like the Lord Jesus, he has no patience with false teachers. But he has great love and compassion for the victim of false teachers. Can I get an amen there? The victims of false teachers, Paul has great compassion, great love, and great hope for. Maybe this is why we see, turn over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression." You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So we must always be careful, loving, compassionate, because apostasy abounds, And apostate teachers abound, and we must care for these 
each other, as we love one another, realizing that all of us are susceptible to being victims of false teachers. He continues in verse number 11, The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Now, as we look at this issue of new creation, we realize that for Paul, the origin of the gospel determines the origin of God's people. Again, new creation. If the good news is of man, then we too are of man, and there's no new creation. Meaning there's no new man, there's no new character, there's no new behavior. The gospel is not man's gospel. He'll push deeper into this in verse 12. Look what he says. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught this or taught it. And this is similar to verse number one. You recall in verse number one, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. You see, he's not sent from man, nor is he sent with a message from man. Paul's message is God's message sent by God. He wants to press in on the fact that this is something the Jewish Sanhedrin cannot claim. This is something his Jewish mentors, remember Gamaliel? This is something his Jewish mentors cannot claim. And this is something that Saul, the former Paul, could not claim before he met Jesus on the Damascus road. And then he finally says in this verse, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is a distinctive gospel message about Christ. This is not the sort of thing human beings could come up with on their own. In order to be known, it had to be revealed by God. So, you know, if you go out, and uh, we've already erased it, but if you go out on uh, Wednesday and you go to the Great Exchange, you know, you ask any of those folks out there, what, what would they do to get to heaven? Do they ever come up with grace? No. Yeah, unless somebody's told them. Unless it's been revealed to them by the Spirit of Christ Himself. They never come up with grace. It's not natural to come up with grace. It is a distinctive message about Christ. It's not something we can come up with. And by the way, this is true of you and I also. If you have faith in Christ this morning, it's not because it's something you came up with. You can't take the credit for it. You can't pat yourself on the back for it. You can't say, well, I just got alone in the mountain somewhere, and me and God got alone. Uh, you ever heard people say, well, my church is out in the woods. It just doesn't work that way. You know, the preacher's job is the outward call, but, we, but what theologians call the effectual or inward call is the work of the Spirit of God Himself. If you're born again this morning, it is a miracle of the all-loving, gracious God Himself. Can I get a hallelujah? You and I are saved today because of the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And Paul wants to make that clear. This is a message that comes from a messenger sent by Christ and a message that comes from Christ. Now Galatians 13 through 17, if you would, sir. For you have heard of my 
so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now I've labeled this sanctification because this is a power-packed group of scriptures. This is where Paul sees the beginning of his story. May I say to you, it's from darkness to light. Hear me. The grace of God demands that we are sinners without hope and far from God. Or we have no need for a Savior. There's not a person in this room who is saved as a good person. It does not happen that way. We, one time in East Coast, when I, where I was pastoring in Virginia Beach, and I thought it'd be, someone told me it'd be a good idea, or a visiting pastor said they had their staff come up and give their testimonies. I had to shut it down. Because I had staff member after staff member get up and give their testimony, and they, they talked about what they, where they, you know, when they got saved, and, and two or three men in a row got up and talked about their life and never mentioned that, how they were a sinner. And I, I pulled them together and I said, my goodness, you guys know I'm transparent. Matter of fact, I'm, I've been told I'm, I'm a little too transparent. Amen. Folks have looked on Amazon to see if they could buy me a filter and can't find one. <laughs> I said, what are you guys up to? And one by one they told me, well, I don't want my children to hear things I've done. I said, so what do you want them to think? That you've been a good person all your life? And they, one by one they said, yes. I said, how are they ever going to live up to that? Hey, folks, I got here by the grace of God and nothing else. Notice in verse 13, he said, I persecuted the church. <laughs> Paul didn't whitewash in a thing. Because he knows that's what the Galatians need to hear. In fact, he was compli a compliant witness of Stephen's stoning. Might I remind you in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, but Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was wanting to hurt some people. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism. You think the high priest would, not, uh, would have entrusted him with letters had he not seen him as someone advancing in Jerusalem? Paul was known as a young man, but he would have been well over 30, or he would have been over 30 years of age. He gives his testimony partly in Acts 22, in verses 3 and 4. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death 
to the death, binding and delivering to the prison both men and women. He wasn't caught up in any gender roles, was he? He does it again in Acts 26, verses 4 and 5. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among mine own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Verse 15, here in Galatians 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Well, glory to God. Paul's theology is anything but shallow. He knows that God's decree was put in place in eternity past. He knows, he, that's why he's not, a, he's not a, a shy about putting himself in the story. It harkens back, does it not? To the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote in Jeremiah, or says in Jeremiah, we'll talk about how Jeremiah, Jeremiah's story was laid out some other time, but in Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5, we read, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. As well, the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. Look at verse 15. And who called me by his grace. What could Paul mean by that? Well, we need only look back at the story in Acts 9. Paul's story is a, a great example of two phrases we often use theologically. And those phrases would be unconditional election. How many are familiar with the phrase unconditional election? I would think many of you. An irresistible grace. Unconditional election. In other words, God chose you and you had nothing to do with it. You didn't fulfill any conditions. Did God look forward and say, yeah, you're a pretty good one. I'll choose you. Let's see what conditions Paul met to get chosen. Let's see if we can find them. Here's one. Here's one of the conditions Paul met. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He's a pretty good one. What you think, Gabriel? Here's another one. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is why the term unconditional election is used. Paul is elected or selected by grace. He did nothing to earn or deserve it. How about... I'm sorry, unconditional election, yeah, grace. Irresistible grace. You say it's irresistible? Well, let's see if Paul could resist it. Let's look back again at his story. Acts 9, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone round him. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What would you have done? <laughs> Falls to the ground. Quit bothering me. Can you imagine? He had but one response. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now think of that for a minute. He's going around hauling folks into prison, getting them killed. He called himself a murderer. And from heaven a voice speaks and says, you're persecuting me. Not these folks, me. I think that'd be a wake-up call. Exactly. <laughs> Verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This is why the term irresistible grace is used. And may I say, by the way, your situation may have seemed less dramatic, but the goodness and mercy of God is no less real. The goodness and mercy of God is no less real. Do you know that you are a scoundrel? but for the grace of God. There is no way I'd have given up my way of life for any reason of my own. I thought I was living large. And for time, but for time's sake, I would go into telling you how cool I was. <laughs> Verse 16, he says... He was pleased to reveal his son in me. What a beautiful word that is. He was pleased. You'll find that the word pleased and the word purpose, and when you read about God's will, they're basically the same word. They're synonymous. So when you read, for example, in Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's the pleasure of His will. You know, when God does something, it's because He's pleased to do it. When God chose you, it was because He was pleased to do it. Think about that for a second. God looked down at old naughty head boy like me, born in downtown Atlanta, <laughs> Georgia Baptist Hospital. You say, can you prove that? I just did. I said, Georgia didn't say Georgia like you Yankees who moved here. <laughs> huh? Now it's Grady. Now they want to shut that down. They say he was born there. Shut her down. <laughs> Thanks be to God. He was pleased. Do you know why you're a Christian today? Do you know why you're born again? Because God was pleased to choose you as his child. What are you beating yourself up for? God is pleased to make you His. Why are you down on yourself? Why do you see no hope for the future? God is pleased to keep your heart beating and your lungs breathing. God is pleased to have you. You say, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what God is thinking. Pleased. Think about all the apostle Paul went through and God said, I am pleased to choose you. Man, I look in the mirror, I know what, that I'm, I'm shocked the mirror doesn't break. But God is pleased with me. Hallelujah. 
Man, I'm not going to let them false prophets out there trying to make a million bucks in their offering plate be more happy about the fact that God chose me. I'm not going to let them be more happy about that than I'm going to be happy and passionate and excited about this. He was pleased. Look at verse number 17. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now, Paul's not being cocky about this. He's trying to tell us a story. He's trying to show us this right here. Commit to Christ, not the law. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what's his point? What should we notice? What should be our takeaway? Well, we know that this whole narrative ties into this. So what should we notice? Here's what we should notice. The distinction is being made between Judaism and the gospel. Paul is set apart, converted, then called to be a preacher of the Gentiles, all with no Jerusalem contact necessary. We can't miss that. Clearly, the Jerusalem church did not commission Paul. This is important. This is powerful. This feeds the entire narrative. Here's a man extremely zealous in the Jewish tradition. Has that been laid out? Has that been made clear? Here's a man whose entire life is wrapped up in the Jewish tradition. He's advancing, advancing rapidly. He, have you ever, some of you folks who are middle-aged, uh, you've, you've, got a, you've got a career path, you've got a marriage, you've got a plan for life. It's all been trashed. He's so wrapped up in it even to the point of persecuting the church. If anyone would know, watch it now, if anyone would know that a blending of the old and new were necessary and proper, it would be the Apostle Paul. He's the guy. Peter's a phenomenal man being used of God, but he's not a Paul. He's a fisherman by trade. If anyone knew that circumcision had a place or an equivalent, Paul would know, and this would be the place and time to bring it up. Paul would be the guy. Paul's life has been soaked in the Old Testament scriptures. And as an apostle, his job is to interpret the Old Testament in the light of new creation. That's his job. This is the way I see it. New. Old. He sees the old through the lens of the new. And that's how we interpret it. Man, I was listening to, to the Word this week. And it was going through Exodus and all the details of the tabernacle. And guess what I saw? I saw you. Because we are those lively stones. We are the tabernacle. And I saw the details. And guess what I saw? I saw the detailed work of your sanctification and mine. If Moses had to copy that pattern 
And they had to do that detailed work, had to be perfect. How much more detail does God put into your life? How much providential care goes into the church? How much is God's hand at work on us today? Do you think Moses cared more about the Old Testament tabernacle than the Spirit of God does about Atlanta Reformation Fellowship? I'm sitting there and I'm so moved with emotion as I realize that the church is God, has God's hand on it and has all of that working together. We don't have time to talk about that, so we're going to move on. I want to move to this third part. Paul's going to give us his steps. He's going to walk us through all these details about where he's been, why he's been, what he's done. And we're going to add to this one, Steve. We're going to add verse 17. So we're going to add verse 17 to it and read it just so we can see where he's going. So if you'll read verse 17 all the way down to verse number 21, sir. Yes, sir. 17 to 21. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. I do not lie. I do not lie. He wants them to know I ain't lying, y'all. It's a big deal to him about this narrative, isn't it? This 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 itinerary. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Alright. So I need my notes for this because I don't want to mess up like I usually do. How about that map? <laughs> Stunning, right? All right, so we're going to call this Jerusalem down here. All right, and we'll put Damascus here. Let's see, Antioch up here. All right, uh, Cilicia. Yeah, we'll do Cilicia. I was going to put Tarsus, but Tarsus is in Cilicia as a province, okay? And then... Uh, We'll put Galatia here because it's a province. Galatia. And then here's all of Europe over here, okay? Okay? And then we're going to do this. Okay? Asia. Now, no, no, no. Arabia. 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 Because this is all Asia, too. Uh, so we'll do Arabia. <laughs> Doesn't have two A's, does it? Okay. We'll just do, there was a song, something, Arab, the Arab or something. I can't remember it now. <laughs> Arabia. All right. I think that'll work. All right. So Paul says here, help me with this, Steve. He says, uh, verse number, uh, verse 17 again. Then after three years, let's see, I went to Jerusalem. So before that, he's in where? He's in Damascus, right? So he's in Damascus. Then he goes... Where is it? Uh, it goes to Arabia, right? It goes to Arabia. 
Damascus. All right, I think I have that right. Let's see here. Yeah. Okay, so we know that that's, we don't know exactly how that lays out, but we, total, all right, we know that that's uh, three years. Okay. Now that's kind of, that's kind of interesting there. There's a lot of thoughts about that. Three years. Three years. What do you do for three years? I don't think he went around quiet. You think Paul was quiet? There are some thoughts about that. You see, there's an eastern dispersion of the Jews, and there's a western dispersion of the Jews. Paul went out there. You see, the Pharisees were spent. This was their, this was their crew over here. This is where the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they were with the Hellenists. They liked the Greeks and all of that stuff. And you think about it in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23-29. Just listen for a second. You've read it before. He says, five times I received 40 lashes minus one. You don't read about those five times him getting lashed like that in the book of Acts. You also read that he was beaten with rods three times. You also read that he was shipwrecked three times. You don't read about all those things in the book of Acts. But you do read here, here. You read a number of things here in Galatians you don't read anywhere else. I wonder. That's just my thought. Hey, I'm just talking. Also in Acts chapter 16, remember he says he wants to go to Asia, but he was forbidden to speak in Asia by the Holy Spirit. Then the Spirit of Christ, he was not allowed to go to Asia. Then he gets the Macedonian Paul, the vision, and he goes off to Europe, right? So Paul is constantly wanting to go. You ever notice this? Paul, Paul is constantly wanting to go east. Even Agabus says, don't go to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. What happens? He gets, he gets arrested, and where does he end up going? Going off to the west again. Paul is just pushing all to the Jews in the east. And God is saying, nope, you're going to the Gentiles to the west. So that's why I lean in this direction. You don't have to agree with me, but you're wrong. Okay. okay. All right. Then he says, there we are in verse 17. Then after three years, I went to three. Yeah, after three years, I went to Jerusalem. All right, he went to Jerusalem, and he was there how long? Fifteen days. All right, he wants to make this clear. Okay, just trying to get a little thing here in front of you. Okay, then he said uh, he went to Cilicia, right? What's in Cilicia? We already said. Tarsus, right. He was there anywhere from 8 to 14 years. If you add up the three years, maybe the three years isn't part of it, maybe it is. And then you look in chapter 2, verse 1. Work it all out, blah, blah, blah. So then he's there eight years, eight to 14 years. Then if we, if we mesh it with the book of Acts, then he comes to Antioch. Who brings him to Antioch? Barnabas does, excuse me. Then he's in Antioch, and then we find out at Antioch, he goes from Antioch to uh, Jerusalem, and he only does that with the collection. Remember the collection for the saints? With the collection... homework you'll be tested on this um then they go back then he goes back to antioch okay back to antioch then uh then they go to the first mission journey okay so we'll just say to mission okay and then uh, the mission and then in acts 14 28 acts 14 they come back uh then he goes back to antioch he likes antioch um and then uh in acts 14 28 14, 28 of Acts. That's when I think he writes the letter to Galatians. Okay? 
Because in Acts 15, then you have the council to Jerusalem. All right? But what I want you to notice, and I already pointed it out, and then I think after Acts 15 is when James writes a letter to James, uh, the, the book of James. We call it to the, uh, the scattered uh, Jews abroad. Um, but in verse 20, I pointed it out to you a minute ago. He says, in what I'm writing to you before God, I lie not. Now, why is Paul fired up about his itinerary? Because, as he says in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. So he is making a big deal about his itinerary. Look, I only spent 15 days in Jerusalem. I spent a total of three years here doing something. Busy, 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 okay? I only spent 15 days here. And so, hey, Jerusalem doesn't have a part in this. All right? Verses 22 and 24, sir. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said... He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because... Okay, notice the phrase there, was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea. Again, Paul is reinforcing the point of verse 12. His gospel did not come from man. It didn't come from Peter, didn't come from James, didn't come from John. His, his gospel did not come from them. But look at verse 22 again. The churches of Judea are in what? Who? Christ. Okay. So he distances himself, he distances himself bleh, from the Judean churches. Hey, I didn't get the gospel from them, but they are in Christ. What is he doing? Now he's making a connection. They are in Christ. Okay. They too are only sufficient and complete by the work of Christ. Hold on to this now. What does that mean then? That means if Paul is saying, I'm here, okay, I didn't get my gospel from them, but they are in Christ, where does that leave the Judaizers, the antagonists? That leaves them on the outside, right? That means, hey, I didn't get it from them, but they are in Christ. See, he, when he pulls them in Christ, what he's saying is the Jewish age with all its shadows, customs, and traditions have, be, have been fulfilled in who? In Christ. From the Passover to Pentecost, from the, from the uh, uh, festival of the temples uh, or the tabernacles. Just kidding, brother. Um, from from Pente Passover to Pentecost, from Sabbaths to sacrifices, from the Decalogue to the Holy Days, from the Temple to the Tithes, from the sin offering to the circumcision, all has been fulfilled in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we, you, I, are, am complete in Him. Charles Wesley wrote this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Behold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? And then his last phrase there, They glorified God 
because of me. Even though he learned the gospel apart from Jerusalem, they glorified God for the gospel work he was doing. Translation, the Judaizers don't represent the Judean churches. Notice Paul's laser-like focus on the gospel. Apart from Jerusalem, I'm reading the wrong line. Notice his, Paul's laser-like focus on the gospel of grace and its implications. Notice his laser-like focus. Is that your focus? Laser-like focus. You can imagine he can get into a, much, a bunch of other stuff, can't you? Galatians are way over there. He's back home in Antioch. This must be our focus. Let me, let me, let me give you, put you into the mind of the legalizers. They lose their focus and create division. That's what they do. Can I give you my testimony in five seconds? That's where I came from. Legalism. We lose our focus. We have spiritual, we had spiritual ADHD. Squirrel. <laughs> that was it. Everything caught our attention. And we thought we were good Christians because we saw it. I saw that. I saw that. I saw that. Focus on Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That was Paul. He's focused. Number two, our gospel is from God. Grace is not something that can come from the mind or heart of man. History tells us that. Man's nature tells us that. And above all else, God's word tells us that. Is your gospel the gospel from God? The gospel of grace. Number three, Paul's conversion was miraculous. Only sovereign grace can explain it. Grace is powerful and transformative. The truth that God was willing to accept us is truly and always life-changing. Do you believe that? Do you believe your conversion is as miraculous as Saul's conversion was? Do you realize how much trouble where you were headed, not just in the next life, I hope you realize that, but even in this life where you were headed before God got a hold of you. Amen. Number four, this is an admonition. Don't give up on the wayward or the lost. Don't give up on them. No doubt few, if any, could imagine that a wolf like Saul would one day lay down with the lambs. Isaiah eleven six. Nobody. Who imagined that? How many you think were praying that Saul would get saved? <laughs> Everywhere he showed up, they said, no, don't let him in. No. Finally, here's the last question. As with Paul, is your life something that others can glorify God for? Paul said, they glorified God in me. Can others glorify God for your life? Praise the Lord. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him 
deepened. <laughs>